Good evening. When we set off uh, to do this series of questions um, and objections almost that people have to Christian faith, um, I, I knew that at certain points along the way it would seem quite, uh, quite hard uh, or difficult to teach on, and I suppose tonight is, is one of those occasions uh, where I, I have a, a strong sense of my limits in terms of what I can share with you. But uh, I, I think I think that spending a bit of time this evening together, my hope for all of us uh, would be that we're a little bit clearer uh, than we were when we came. Uh, you'll hear me promising that rather than suggesting that all our questions will be answered for all time. Uh, but, but certainly my prayer would be that um, we would we'd understand a little more uh, of this uh, very important question. In our culture, the idea that God judges people I think is one of Christianity's most offensive teachings. Uh, I'm not naive to that. Uh, don't imagine that because I'm here that I somehow naively imagine that this isn't uh, a difficult area for many people. Uh, I'm not here because I love to dwell on the reality of hell, uh, but, but because I'm troubled by it uh, as much as anyone else might be. So as a minister and a preacher who often uh, finds himself speaking on biblical passages and preaching biblical truth, I often have to deal with passages that talk about God's wrath or anger or his final judgment or hell. So I, I understand the, the responses that that kind of teaching uh, brings. People find this distressing. People who enjoy most 90-something percent of what the Bible says find themselves often repulsed by, by this idea of God's judgment and of hell. And I have to say I find that understandable. This evening as we want to look at this important subject together, I want to take a, a lead from Tim Keller whose book we've based this series on and follow the approach that he takes there. Keller says that although our objection to hell and judgment may seem to be more of a feeling of revulsion than a doubt, we can still find a number of very specific beliefs hidden inside it. So he says that there are beliefs that we hold which make it difficult for us to, to believe in the reality of hell. We're going to take a little bit of time this evening to examine some of those underlying beliefs together. Uh, those things that make it difficult for us to, to take uh, this difficult teaching of the Bible to heart. So, so let's have a look at these underlying beliefs together. The first is that a God of judgment simply cannot exist. So for some people, uh, and we're going to address that, they, they don't believe that such a God could possibly exist. A second belief is that a God of judgment cannot be a God of love. And the third that is that a loving God wouldn't allow hell. That, that's a framework that we're going to work through, uh, work to for the next sort of 20 minutes or so. So let's start with this first underlying belief that a God of judgment simply can't exist. When I was studying theology, 
theology at Regent College in Vancouver, I kept coming across a book that had never really come across in, in British uh, writing, but seemed to crop up in, in many, many disciplines in, in theological studies in North America. It's called Habits of the Heart by Robert Vela, and it's basically a, a study of sociology. It's a little bit out of date now, but the ideas in it um, certainly characterize American culture and, and I think very much the, the culture that we inhabit today. He talks in the book about an expressive individualism that dominates American culture. And interesting for us this evening, Bella's research shows that 80% of Americans agree with this statement. An individual should arrive at his or her own religious convictions independent of any church or synagogue. So our spiritual beliefs, says Bella, are a matter of our own tastes and preferences. We're making up what we want to believe. That's how our culture, by and large, works. So what does this look like in practice? Well, it means that in our culture, we have no problem with a God of love who supports us no matter what we do and how we live. That's just the kind of God we want or think we want. So that's the kind of God we choose for the most part to believe in. That God is one that we've just created in our own minds. I see it often when I conduct funerals. As they gather at the crematorium or around the grave, the family and the friends of the deceased, they decide in that moment that their loved one is in heaven or that they've gone to a better place. The view isn't based on any real religious conviction or practice. It's rather that they believe that because they want to believe that. He's looking down on us just now. It's better for her. She's gone to a better place. Our spiritual beliefs have become a matter of our own tastes and preferences. It wasn't always this way. It, it used to be that people believed in a transcendent moral order beyond themselves. And living well meant discovering and understanding more of that order and living in step with it. Modernity's changed all of that because instead of trying to bring our lives in step with uh, a greater uh, moral order, we try now to control reality and shape it to fit our lives. So in the modern spirit, we have become uh, responsible for determining what's right and what's wrong. And because we have learned to control the physical world around us in, in a lot of different ways, we now imagine that we can, in the same way, control realities beyond that. For the modern person, our eternal destiny is in our own hands. So for the modern person whose beliefs are entirely a matter of our own tastes and preferences, we're not going to believe in a God who judges and in the reality of hell. We'll prefer to contrive something that's more palatable to us. So that's the first objection that we have to hell. For the modern person, a God of judgment simply cannot exist. A second underlying belief that makes it difficult 
for people to believe that a loving God would send people to hell is the belief that a God of judgment can't be a God of love. Christians believe in a God of judgment and of love. And some people struggle with that. They believe that a loving God can't be a judging God. How could a God of love also be a God filled with wrath and with anger? If he's loving and he's perfect, he should just forgive us all and accept everyone. He shouldn't get angry. Let's pause for a moment to reflect on that line of thinking. Isn't it true that people, that loving people are sometimes filled with anger, not despite, but because of their love? If you love a person and you see them ruining someone or even themselves, you get angry. And in her book, Rebecca Manley Pippert, in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Rebecca Manley Pippert puts it like this. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with a benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath isn't a cranky explosion, but it's a settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. So the Bible teaches that God's wrath and his anger flows out of his love and his delight in his creation. He's angry at evil and at injustice because it's destroying the creation and the creatures he loves. And so you have David, the psalmist, Israel's great poet laureate, and he speaks of God's love and of his judgment in one and the same breath. Psalm 145. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. The Lord watches over those who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My own view is that we underestimate the ferocious goodness and love of God. And that we underestimate his anger towards anything that's destroying the things that he loves. Some people would argue that a belief in a God who judge leads to increased violence in the world. If you believe that God punishes evildoers, then you might just think it perfectly reasonable to go out and attack people yourself. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to read a very profound book on the subject of reconciliation and forgiveness. It's called Exclusion and Embrace by Miroslav Volf, a theologian from Croatia. And he was writing in the aftermath of the violence in the Balkans. And he doesn't see the doctrine of God's judgment as contributing to human violence. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and didn't make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. He goes on. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves 
is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. It's a, a fascinating book. If you're, if you're interested in how a post-conflict culture like ours might move forward, I'd recommend it uh, to you. Wolf argues that it's a lack of belief in a God of vengeance that secretly nourishes violence. If there's really no God who will finally judge the world, then it falls on me to pick up the sword and it falls on me to attack my enemy and to make right those wrongs. It falls on me to enter into that endless vortex of retaliation. We know that story only too well here in Ulster. Only if I'm sure that there's a God who will finally right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly do I have the power to stop. Karl Marx once said famously that religion is the opiate of the people. He said that the promise of the afterlife had led poor and working class people to put up with unjust social conditions. We have a new opium of the people today. And it's the belief in nothingness after death. The Nobel Prize winning Czech poet, Czechlaw Milost, he talks about the huge solace of thinking that our betrayals Greed, cowardice, and murders are not going to be judged. And he points out that all religions recognize that our deeds are imperishable. Many people complain that a God of judgment leads to a more brutal society, but here we have people, uh, men who have grown up in cultures of violence, both uh, Milos and Wolf, Milos has grown up under Nazism and communism. And they're arguing that it's the loss of belief in God and his judgment that leads to brutality. If we're free to shape life and morality in any way we choose without an ultimate accountability, that is what leads often to violence. Listening to the voices of these people and reflecting deeply on our own experience we'll begin to question that firmly held belief that we have that a God of judgment can't be a God of love. A third underlying belief that makes it difficult for people to believe that a loving God would send people to hell is the belief that a loving God wouldn't allow hell in the first place. This is the first time this evening that we're actually going to think about what hell is or, or might be. Uh, you've probably seen that we, ha- we haven't gone there just yet. A lot of us probably think of it something like this. If I passed around uh, sheets of paper and a pen and asked you all in 300 words to write, what is hell? W- what's that all about? How does that work? We'd actually give quite a variety of different answers. But a theme that I think might recur is something like this. We imagine that God gives us time in this life and that if we've made the right choices by the end of our lives, 
sorry, if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, then he casts our souls into hell for eternity. As the poor soul falls through space, they cry out in mercy, but God says, too late, you had your chance, now you'll suffer. Tim Keller argues that this caricature misunderstands the nature of evil. The Bible teaches, you see, that sin separates us from God. And because God is the source of all joy and of all love and of all wisdom and of all good things of any sort, it teaches that we were made for God, by God, for friendship with God. The Bible teaches that it's only in God's company that we flourish, that we live well, that we reach our full potential. If we were to lose the capacity for God's presence, that would be hell. The loss of our capacity for giving and receiving joy and goodness and love. One of the common images of that the Bible uses when it talks about hell. And by the way, the Bible uses a lot of imagery. Um, we need to be clear about that when we read the biblical passages. One of the common images is the image of fire. If you ever were a student of science, you'll know that uh, one of the, the fundamental effects of fire is to break things down. It disintegrates things. So fire disintegrates. Even in this life, we know how the effects of rampant evil disintegrate a person's life. When a person slides into selfishness and self-absorption, when they become bitter, when they become envious, when they have a paralyzing anxiety, a paranoid thought patterns, and all sorts of mental denials and deceptions eventually grow, sin leads to disintegration. If that's true, and we've seen that played out in this life, now I ask the question, what if we really are eternal beings? What if we don't end when we die? What if our lives somehow extend into eternity? Hell, then, is, is a trajectory of the soul living a God-denying, self-absorbed, self-centered life into eternity. Maybe that's thrown you a little bit. Maybe it doesn't fit with the picture that you're running with in your mind uh, about hell just now. Let's read a story that Jesus told. Uh, Luke chapter 16 and see the, the picture of hell that's presented there. Luke chapter 16. It would help you to flick this up, and you'll see with me. Page 1050, if you're using the Bibles there in the pew. This isn't, of course, the only time that Jesus talked about hell. He, he talked about it quite often and that's a, a sobering thing I think for those of us who want to be his disciples but would prefer not to, to engage that reality but let's read this particular story Jesus told 
There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abram far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called out, Father Abram, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abram replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abram replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. There's some interesting things going on in this passage which I think help us to, to think more than we've maybe done before about the nature of hell. First of all, notice that although the status of the two men in this story has been reversed, the rich man seems to be blind to what's happening. He still expects Lazarus to be his servant. Twice he asks that Lazarus be sent on an errand at his command. Second thing about this picture of hell, notice that the rich man doesn't ask to leave. Third, notice that he implies that God never gave him or his family enough information about the afterlife. There seems to be a lot of denial here, of blame shifting, of spiritual blindness on the part of this soul in hell. And notice finally that the rich man, unlike Lazarus, he isn't given a, a name. He's simply called the rich man. You get the impression that there's not much more to say about this guy. And that when his wealth is taken away, he has no identity left. There is nothing left. So, so hell then is simply the place where we end up when we freely choose to live a life without God and when that life is extended into infinity. It's a place of fire. We've talked about that. Uh, where life disintegrates when sin takes control. It's often described in the Bible too as a place of darkness. Uh, and I think that speaks of the isolation that, that comes with increasing and rampant sin in our lives. 
we start to blame others. We start to blame our circumstances for our behavior. No one understands me. We shout, everyone's against me. And we slide into greater self-pity and greater self-absorption. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes a busload of people from hell who have been brought to the outskirts of heaven. And they're invited to leave behind the sins that trapped them in hell. They refuse. You see, it's a travesty to picture God casting people into a pit who are crying, I'm sorry, let me out. The people on the bus from hell would rather have their freedom from God rather than the salvation that God offers to them. Their delusion is that they think that if they chose to live for God and his glory, they'd somehow miss out. And the tragic irony is that the refusal to live under God's blessed rule is what's ruined them and and their potential for greatness. Hell is, as, as Lewis says, the greatest monument to human freedom. I've almost finished what I've prepared by way of a presentation here this evening, but I want to spend the last few minutes uh, sharing with you the conclusion of Tim Keller's chapter on this subject in The the Reason for God. He reflects in, in the final part of his chapter on his own spiritual journey. And he demonstrates that there's actually very little justification for believing in a God who only loves who accepts everyone and judges no one. To believe in such a God, he argues, requires a huge leap of faith. Let me read from Keller here. It's an extended quotation, so hear it as as a biographical account. During my college years and my early 20s, I, like so many others, questioned the Christian faith I was raised in. There were subjective reasons for my doubts. Christianity didn't seem real to me experientially. I hadn't developed a prayer life and had never experienced God personally. There were also intellectual problems I was having with Christianity, all of which I'm addressing elsewhere in this book. There was one, however, that I will talk about here. I was troubled by those Christians who stressed hellfire and damnation. Like so many of my generation, I believed that if there was a core to all religions, it was a loving God. I wanted to believe in a God of love who accepted people regardless of their beliefs and practices. I began to take courses in the other major religions of the world. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Confucianism and Judaism. I've profited to this day from those studies. However, my exploration in other faiths proved me wrong on this particular point about the centrality of a loving God. I found no other religious text outside of the Bible that said God created the world out of love and delight. Most ancient pagan religions believed that the world was created through struggles 
and violent battles between opposing gods and supernatural forces. I turned to look more closely at Buddhism, the religion I liked best at the time. However, despite its great emphasis on selflessness and detached service to others, Buddhism did not believe in a personal God at all, and love is the action of a person. Later on, after I became a minister, I was a speaker and panelist for several years in a monthly discussion program in Philadelphia between a Christian church and a mosque. Each month, a speaker from the church and a speaker from the mosque would give a biblical and Quranic perspective on a topic. When we covered the topic of God's love, it was striking how different our conceptions were. I was told repeatedly by Muslim speakers that God was indeed loving in the sense of being merciful and kind to us. But when the Christians spoke of the Lord as our spouse, of knowing God intimately and personally, and of having powerful effusions of his love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, our Muslim friends balked. They told us that it was disrespectful in their review to speak in their view to speak of anyone knowing God personally. Today, many of the skeptics I talked to say, as I once did, that they can't believe in the God of the Bible who punishes and judges people because they believe in a God of love. I now ask, what makes them think God is love? Can they look at life in the world today and say this proves that the God of this world is a God of love? Can they look at history and say that this all shows that the God of history is a God of love? By no means is that the dominant ruling attribute of God as understood in any of the major faiths. I must conclude that the source of the idea that God is love is the Bible itself. And the Bible tells us that the God of love is also a God of judgment who will put all things in the world to rights in the end. The belief in a God of pure love who accepts everyone and judges no one is a powerful act of faith. Not only is there no evidence for it in the natural order, there's almost no historical religious textual support for it outside of Christianity. The more one looks at it, the less justified it appears. 